0: Amen. All right, if you want to grab your Bibles and turn with me in James chapter 4, James chapter 4, we're continuing our series through the book of James that we've been in for most of the fall, and it'll take us to Advent, which is the Christmas season. And I want to say, as we turn there, uh, it's no secret, I would imagine, that we are two days from a national election. And it's no surprise that God would have us in this passage as we're walking through this book, because I believe this book and this passage in particular has a lot to say for this election season. And I want to say, even before we get into the sermon and read the text, that wherever you land, however you vote on Tuesday, you're welcome at Strong Tower. There, There are many different viewpoints, many different backgrounds, many different experiences here at Strong Tower, you will find people sitting next to you who support Black Lives Matter, people sitting next to you who support Blue Lives Matter, people next to you who will vote for Trump, and people next to you who will vote for Biden. Hopefully no one who doesn't vote. Come on, somebody. No. Uh, But we love you all. Whatever happens Tuesday, we will love one another as the church. Amen. Amen. Let's turn to James chapter 4, Verses 1 through 10, hear the reading of God's Word. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, and so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, and so you fight and quarrel. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Amen. Amen. I want to tag this text, hope for hostility. Hope for hostility. Let's pray before we dive in. Father, we again are grateful for your word. We ask as we look to your word for the next few moments that your Holy Spirit would speak to us, do the work that we cannot do. We cannot change our hearts. We cannot change the hearts of others. It's only you that can do that. And so God, we pray your word would be put to work, and that it would not return void, but that you would make us more and more into the image of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, the Rumble in the Jungle might be the most famous boxing fight in recent history. And if you're not familiar with the Rumble in the Jungle, it was in 1974. It was George Foreman, who was the undefeated heavyweight champion of the world, and he was fighting against Muhammad Ali, who was the previous heavyweight champion. And it began kind of slow. It, it had this high anticipation, but it, it began as a slow fight. And Muhammad Ali was was well known for his words, but also his strategy. He had an incredible strategy, and it was a very uh, strategic fighter in, in all that he did. And, and he had, going into this fight, a strategy that you might call risky. The strategy was to allow George Foreman to get him up on the ropes all throughout the beginning of the fight. He wanted to let him get him up on the ropes and just let him go to town with body shots, punching him in the gut over and over because he wanted to get Foreman tired. He wanted to wear him out by letting him beat on him. Now, it sounds risky because it doesn't sound comfortable, right? But he did it, and after about eight rounds, I mean, he's just going to town at his gut and And, you know, Ali, he's standing back just mocking him, hit harder, George, hit harder, George, I thought you were bad. And so he hit harder, and he hit harder, and he got more tired. In the eighth round, Ali took his opportunity and knocked him out. He was so exhausted, he had nothing left. And afterwards, you know, you hear the the Louisville lip is the king of the ring again, but there's some fights, and this is one of them, that you, you, uh, you, you lose them before you begin. There's some fights before you even step into the ring, it's, it's lost because you didn't have the right strategy. You ever been in a fight or an argument or a conflict where you realized at some point in the conflict, I don't know why I'm doing this? I don't know why I'm even fighting. I don't know what's even going on. I mean, I'm sure George Foreman, in in the middle of that fight somewhere, asked himself, why am I doing this? And it's not just when you realize you're losing, right? Sometimes you're, you're in a fight and you realize you're winning and you shouldn't have been fighting in the first place. You shouldn't have been having that fight with your spouse. You shouldn't have been having that fight with your coworker, your kid, your neighbor, your church friend. Whatever it was, you shouldn't have gotten into the comments section on Facebook. I mean, that ever happened to you? You're like, why am I doing this? Then you keep fighting and there's conflict and there's bickering and there's quarreling. And next thing you know, it gets really bad. See, there are so many, I mean, even in the church, let's, listen, even in the church, there's fights. I know some of you, that might be a shock, because you're new to church. Stick around. But why? I mean, why do these kinds of fights happen? I mean, like I said, we're, we're two days away from a national election, and, and it's probably the most divided the church has been in a very long time. I mean, polls and research talk about that all the time, and you know, how much can you trust that? I don't know. But I feel it. It feels divided. It feels divided, the, the way we talk, the way we interact. I mean, friendships are strained. Family members won't talk to each other. Church members have decided, I'm not coming back for a couple months because I can't deal with being around people. I mean, it's tense. It's heavy. But why? Why all the conflict? Why, why all the quarreling, as James says? That's what I want to ask today. So as we continue this series in the letter of James, we've been calling this series A Faith That Works. And James has been talking to a group of people that are spread out throughout the Mediterranean. And it's a very diverse group of people, right? You've got Jews and Gentiles, rich and old, slaves and free, men and women, all the different diversity aspects that you could have. James is writing to all these people. And anytime you get that kind of diversity in a group, There's conflict. I hear people all the time ask me, you know, how how does our church pursue diversity and what what are the things we can do? I try to warn people, be careful what you ask for. More diversity means more conflict. More diversity of thought, more conflict. More diversity of ethnicity, more conflict. More diversity of economics, more conflict. It just, it breeds that. It brings it out of us. And so why? Why? James helps us understand not only why, but hope for that conflict. And so if you're taking notes this morning, the first point I want to talk about is the cause of conflict, the cause of conflict. Look at verse 1 and what James says. He asks it straight up. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. I mean, James asks another one of his piercing questions that he asks throughout the book, and, and this time it's, it's real straightforward. What is causing the conflict? And he gives one word, passions. Passions. In the original language here, the Greek word, it's hedenei. It sounds strange maybe, but you've heard of the word hedonism before, possibly. It comes from that same root. It's, it's this idea of the pleasure of the senses. So you have a, a deep desire, a feeling, an experience, a craving for something, and then someone blocks it. You have plans, and then someone crushes your plans, and so then what do you do? You crush them. Because anybody that stands in your way, you're going to go to war with them to make sure they don't stop you getting what you want to get. Because there's already a war within you. In other words, what James is saying is the conflict that's happening out here is a representation of the conflict that's happening in here. He says there's already a war happening inside of your soul, and that's why there's a war outside. He goes on in verse 2. He says, you do not have because you do not ask, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. To spend it on your passions. In other words, he's saying your whole approach to life is essentially secular. He says it's prayerless. You don't, you don't even go to God. You, you don't ask God for the things that you need. You don't talk to God about your struggles. You don't talk to God about what you're going through. You just try to get it. You just try to make it happen. And let me tell you, prayerlessness is one of the greatest signs of worldliness. That you've given yourself over to the world because there is no prayer in your life. And then he says, even when you do pray, you pray and try to spend it on your own passions. Because all you care about is me, myself, and I. And this is, this is a heavy word. What, what he's saying is this. He's saying this passion for myself. This this passion, this undying desire for my own uh, desires and passions is the cause of the conflict. In other words, our hostility shows our idolatry. Our hostility shows our idolatry. One of the clearest examples of this in the Old Testament is with King Saul. If you're not familiar with King Saul's uh, story in the Old Testament, he was the first king of Israel... And right after him comes David, right? And there's this in-between time where God anoints David to be the next king of Israel, but Saul is still king. And so he'd already sent Samuel to go anoint David. And, and then after David's anointed, he goes to fight the famous battle with Goliath. And even if you never read the Bible, you know about David and Goliath. I mean, he's like the OG underdog. He, the story is epic. It's the most famous victory in all of Israel's history. It's, It's the most famous fight that they would win against this giant Goliath. And so you would imagine David comes back from that battle that everyone would be excited. And they were, right? All of Israel is gathered around to welcome in these war heroes, and they start to sing. And they start to sing the praises of David. And now, I don't know how they write songs back then, but... This was the hook of the song. Let me get it right. This was the hook of the song. Saul struck down his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Now, it doesn't sound like it would work great, but but apparently it was the greatest hit. Like they, They made YouTube videos. It was going on for weeks. They had dances with it. It was incredible. Singing about all that David had done. David struck down his ten thousands, but Saul his thousands. And when Saul hears the song on the radio... He's filled with rage. Filled with rage. I mean, he, he looks at David and he sees this little shepherd boy. How could they sing his praises? Look at me. I'm so great. I'm their king. And so David comes over to the king's palace the next day. And Saul sees him and he's full of envy. And his envy turns into hostility. And you can just, you can hear it. In the way he talks, you can see it in the way he's described. There's just rage that comes upon Saul. And as he looks at David and he begins to fill with rage, he walks over to the corner, he grabs a spear and throws it at David. Tries to kill him. He misses, and David goes on to be king. But ask yourself this question, how do you go from a song to a spear? How do you go from a Facebook comment to hatred? How do you go from a disagreement about what happened to I want to take your life? Idolatry. Idolatry. That's how it happens. In other words, his his idolatry was fueling his hostility, and it's the same with us. There's this idolatry in our heart that wants to make something into a God, something greater and more ultimate than it's supposed to be, and it shows in all kinds of ways. It shows in in first in, in our comparisons. right? How often do we measure ourselves by other people? I mean, it could be anything. It can be the way they look. It can be the, the job they have, the status they have, the, the house they live in, the marriage they have that you wish you had. Whatever it is, you're, you're measuring yourself by that other person wishing that you could have what they have. And there's this deep shame. Who am I? Why am I, why am I such a failure? Why, why can't I have what they have? Why, why can't I do what they do? And there's this inner war, this inner turmoil that happens that James is describing. He says, it's your passion to have their their life that starts this battle within you. Have you ever heard the phrase, comparison is the thief of joy? It's because you can't possibly live your life wishing you had what they had and still have joy. And so we compare. The second one is this. The second is criticism. Idolatry shows in our criticism, and this this one hits me hard. I mean, what are you critical of? Many of us have such a deep critical spirit that when the idolatrous person reflects on the blessings of others, we can't help but criticize them. Right? In, In order to make sense of how they have something that I don't have, I have to tear them down. Right? The only way it makes sense that they have the life that I wish I could have is that something must be wrong with them, and so I have to criticize them, speak ill of them, gossip about them, criticize and tear down. We're the hardworking ones. We're the right ones. We're the good ones. We're the logical ones. And so we criticize because we wish what they had. I mean, ask yourself, who, who do you criticize? I would almost guarantee something about them is what you wish you had. And the last one is complaining. Idolatry shows itself in complaining. See, criticism is angry that they have it, but complaining is angry that we don't. Idolatry, and this, this is such a lie in idolatry. Idolatry is blind to the, the goodness that we already have. See, I'll, I'll criticize somebody else because of what they have and what I wish I had, but then I start complaining because I look around my life and all I can see is the bad, I can't see the good because I'm so focused on what that person has. And I can't see the blessing that God has done in my life because all I can see is how they treat me or, or how I wish I was like them or, or whatever it is, and, and I'm so tunnel-visioned, I'm blind. And that's how idolatry works. It's this progression of I'm comparing myself, I'm criticizing them, and now I'm complaining and I'm just miserable. And all that does is create an environment for conflict. You bite and devour one another, as the Bible says. So that's what happens horizontally, right? But James doesn't stop there. James says, now, what does that do to our relationship with God? Because the conflict that we see here... Is, rel- is, is related to the conflict that we have with God. And this is where he goes next, the jealousy of God. Look at verse 4. He, he says strong words, You adulterous people! Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously, over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, right? So James is comparing us in our relationship, with God, to a marriage. He's saying that this is not a political relationship. This is a marital relationship. I mean, that's all throughout the Bible that God is described as our husband. God is described as, as the one who has pursued us as a husband would pursue his bride. And so you, you hear us in the, in the New Testament described as the bride of Christ, We're described in this marital relationship, this this union with God. And so like any good husband who loves his bride, God desires an exclusive relationship. God desires all of our heart. And and so he's saying when when we get into bed with the world, its values, its priorities, its gods, its desires, we make our, our marriage vows void. We break the vows that we take to God, and so he calls it what it is. He says, idolatry is adultery. And then he says this. This is fascinating to me. James says, God yearns with jealousy. This is, this is somewhat of a mystery here. What, what's the difference between sinful jealousy and godly jealousy, right? Sinful jealousy is all about you. Sinful jealousy is about your ego, your pride, your advancement, and and what happens is love replaces, or, or love is replaced with selfish anger. It's all about me. I'm angry because of what that person has done and how they've harmed me. But godly jealousy, listen here, godly jealousy is selfless, angry love. I love how Tim Keller describes it. He says, Godly jealousy is love fighting extinction. Sinful jealousy is love gone extinct. I love that because he's saying godly jealousy stays committed to the relationship. It's staying committed to the person and is saying, I want to restore the relationship at all costs. I'm going to do whatever it takes. And so a jealous God will settle for nothing less than an exclusive relationship. He says, I want all of you. God is saying, I'm jealous for your whole heart. I'm jealous for all of your life all of your mind, all of your strength. I want all of you. I'm jealous. Aaron Smith is a man who was uh, tired of the typical online dating experience a couple years ago. And uh, like many single people, he's trying to figure out other options as he's working with these different dating apps. And he decides to come up with his own dating app. He decides he's going to call his friend who's an app developer, and and he says he pitches his idea for, for what he calls Singularity is the name of the app. He says, I want you to create an app, but here's the catch. I want the only male to be me. That's right. He said, I want the only male on the entire app to be me. So there can't be any other males who join. Only females can join this dating app. And what they'll do is every time they swipe through, they'll just see pictures of me. (laughs) Pictures of Aaron at the beach, pictures of Aaron with his family, pictures of Aaron with his dog, just pictures of Aaron. And this is what he says as, as he was being interviewed about his app. He said, singularity saves you countless hours of swiping by just matching you with me. The goal is to have zero competition. Zero competition. Now for him, that might be a little bit egotistical. But when you're God, God's goal for his relationship with us is zero competition. God's relational goal with us is to say, I want all of you. I want there to be no other options because I want your affection. And friends, many of us have fallen into friendship with the world rather than an exclusive love for God. We've swiped left on God and given our hearts over to our political priorities. We've given our hearts over to our pursuit of success. We've given our hearts over to so many other things. We've said, I want God and I want these things. And listen, you can tell your political priorities have have your heart when it runs your emotional life. When, when your, your hope is towards your candidate and your wrath is towards the other candidate. You can tell that it has your affections when, when it runs your highs and lows and everything in your life is about what's happening in the news. And listen, I'm not saying we shouldn't engage In fact, I'm saying you should engage. I want us as a church, as as the church of Jesus, with the good news of the gospel and truth, to speak truth to power, to speak truth in society, to be a part of change in our community. But listen to me, don't give it your heart. Don't give it your heart. James is saying don't get in bed with the world. Because what happens is the moment you give it your heart, there's, there's this giving yourself over where now the new king of your life, the new lord of your conscience is no longer God. And what he says is kind of scary. God is jealous. He's jealous. And this jealous heart of God is filled with angry love for us. I mean, this is a hard truth, but, but here, here's what, what he's saying. And, and I've describe it this way, is this kind of, um, this, this spectrum that you have. You see, on, on one side, you have conservative Christians who want to emphasize that if you don't do the right thing, God will be angry and you'll be judged. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you have maybe more progressive Christians who say, God is love, and it really doesn't matter what you do in your life, you can do whatever you want. And both are wrong. Here's why. The the answer in the Bible is the jealousy of God. Because the truth is, you can't do whatever you want. You're married. You're married to Jesus. And when you signed up for a marriage to Jesus, you signed up for an exclusive relationship. And that means you can't give your heart to a political party. You can't give your heart to your career. You can't give your heart to your hope for your kids doing something. You can't give your heart to money. You can't give your heart to anything else. Jesus said you can serve either God or mammon, not both. This is an exclusive marriage. But also, listen, he doesn't just want your compliance. He doesn't just want you to go through the motions and do the duty of serving God. He wants your affection. He's your husband. He wants your love. His love for you longs for your love for him. And so the call that God has for us today and throughout all our days is that you would come back to Him and Him alone. He wants exclusive rights to you. This is the heart of God, the height of his love for you that nothing less than all of you will do. Jesus said it this way You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, all. Right? And then Jesus says at another place, He says, You shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And you say, Pastor, what are you talking about? How can I be perfect in my love for God? I've given my heart over to so many other things. You're right. All of us have. And this is where James says, you need grace. You need grace. C.S. Lewis said it like this. He says, you ask for a loving God and you have one. He's a consuming fire of love itself. The only way to survive his perfect consuming fire that desires you to have no one else is grace. And this is the last point, the grace of humility. Look at verse 6, what James says. He says, but he gives, I love this, he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Isn't that great? God finds you in bed with another woman. And he says, come on. I'm inviting you back because I love you. He's saying, I'm I'm eager to embrace you. I'm I'm jealous for your love, but, but I'm inviting you back. And it's this call for repentance, right? Our relationship with God is always him first. It's always him moving in our direction, moving despite our sin, moving towards us despite our brokenness. But there's a call to come to him. He says, I'll make the first move, but I need you to come back and give me all your hearts, all of it. And I love what he says, he he, he says it, he describes it this way, to who does he give it? The humble. He says, more, more grace for the humble. Grace that's more than our sin, more than our failure, more than our idolatry, more, but it's for the humble. He says, I'm against the proud, but I receive the humble. And James goes on in verse 7 through 10 to describe humility, what this move looks like in a series of Ten Commandments. I mean, he just goes off. Ten imperatives right here. He says, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, draw near to God, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, grieve, mourn, weep, let your laughter become mourning, joy become gloom. I mean, he is just saying this is downward. And it may seem harsh if you don't know your sin. But he's calling you to see the depth of your sin and to own it. He says, be wretched. Turn your laughter into gloom. He says, own your stuff. He says, it's there that you realize what grace costs you. See, sin is not cheap, nor is it to be cheapened. And so James summarizes it this way. He says, humble yourselves before God and he will exalt you. He will exalt you. That's how healing happens in this hostility. Hostility is healed by humility. It's healed by humility. In 1953, there was a man named Edmund Hillary who was the, well, one of the first to reach the peak of Mount Everest. He had climbed to the peak with a group of friends and different people, and, and they, they made this incredible feat and became instantly famous, right? As the first people to reach the top of Mount Everest... He came down and everyone wanted to give him awards and accolades and all these different things. Even the Queen of England made him a knight. She knighted him for climbing Mount Everest. And so here you have this famous man who's well-known throughout the climbing community and and the broader worldwide fame of his life. And he would often go back to the Himalayas and and climb. And, And one of those trips back, he's there, and there's a group of people who notice him. Other climbers who were there, on the mountain, and they notice him, and they say, hey, hey, could you take a picture with us? We, we want proof that we met you. And so he, he says, yeah, sure, let's take a picture. And so they all kind of gather up as a group, and one of the guys hands him an ice pick, and he says, hold the ice pick. It'll look more authentic. So he's holding the ice pick in the picture. Somebody walks by, another climber in a different group, and he says to this world-famous climber, he says, hey, You're holding the ice pick wrong. This is how you hold it. And everybody in the group immediately turns towards him, and they're shocked. It's awkward. They don't know how is he going to respond. Don't they know who this guy is? And he just calmly moves his hand, and he shouts back, thank you. Thank you. I mean, this man who who had literally reached the peak the peak of all that people could imagine they could do he climbed mount everest he's this world famous guy and in this moment rather than exalt himself rather than tell him you don't know who you are how dare you tell me what to do or how to t- how to do something about climbing he just says thank you he lowers himself it's humility's direction See, humility lowers, it requires lowering yourself for the other. Humility knows that there is hostility, there is difference between two parties. There's one who is high, there's one who is low, there's one who's untouchable, there's one who's unreachable, right? And so humility makes the move downward toward the brokenness, toward the pain, toward the sin, and that's what God is calling us to do in our own humbling of ourselves. He's saying, I want you to move downward, to be honest about what's really happening in your life. I want you to move downward towards the sin, not to ignore it, but to say, that's who I really am. To own the failure, to grieve the reality of your rebellion, to weep over your wandering heart, to humble ourselves and be honest with what's going on in our life. But listen, here's the miracle of the gospel. In God's show of humility, He doesn't move towards His sin. He moves towards ours. He heals the hostility between us by humbling Himself for us. He chooses to chase us down in jealousy, in angry love. He refuses to give up on the relationship. And like a husband in pursuit of his adulterous wife, he comes after us. He chases us down in the darkness of our adultery. He chases us down in the battle of our bitterness. He chases us down in the shame of our story. And he declares, you are my beloved. You are the one worthy of everything I can give. And so I will give all of it to have you. I mean, how can a faithful God remain faithful to an unfaithful spouse? He takes the cost. He dies to preserve the marriage. He dies. This is the mystery of the gospel of what's happening as Jesus hangs on the cross, that God is pouring out his wrath on his own son. He's taking the cost himself. He's pouring out his wrath for your sin, for my sin, for all of our rebellion throughout eternity. He's getting it. Himself, And in that moment, for the first time in all history, Jesus feels the face of his father turn away. And Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the father forsakes the son so that he could be faithful to us. He forsakes the son so that he can pursue his adulterous church. So that he can love us in the midst of our idolatry. Because he makes us right in his son. He makes us right in the perfect love of his son for his father. And so the gracious humility of God to take our punishment, to take our wrath, so that he could love us as our husband. His humble love for us is how he calls us to love him and to love others. Do you need to humble yourself today? As we close and, and the worship band's going to come, I just want to ask you, as you examine your own heart, as James says, humble yourselves before God, that He might exalt you. That's what it means to be a Christian. We're about to take communion in just a few moments, and and uh, communion is that reminder. Communion is the reminder to humble yourselves at the table before Him. And so I want to invite us to do that this morning as we close in prayer and we move towards the table how, how do you need to humble yourself in light of the humble God who pursued you, who loved you, who died for you? Let's pray. Father, we are so amazed at such grace, such humility in a God who's so highly exalted, in a God who doesn't deserve to endure our unfaithful love, And yet you choose that. You choose to love us. You choose to take the cost. As we, your adulterous people, cry out for mercy and forgiveness, we ask that you would change us. Give us new hearts that are not full of selfish desire and selfish ambition, as James says here, that you would take away the hostility in our own hearts that longs for things other than you. and Give us a heart that's after you and you alone. Give us a heart that pursues you Because, Lord, that's the only healing that will heal our church and heal our community is if we deal with our idolatry. Lord, we pray you would do it by your grace for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.